Hello from Los Angeles. This is Hear Her Sports, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. I've been here in LA at the Totally Awesome Work It Women's Podcasting Conference. For all of you women out there, if you ever have a chance to attend an all-women's conference, definitely go. It's been such a blast to be surrounded by all these strong, energetic women. Everyone seems totally on the move and ready for action. Lots of sneakers and other fantastic adventure outfits. Since I've been fully occupied here at Work It, I figured this is a great opportunity to share with you my other podcast, Off the Front, about women and cycling. I produce Off the Front under the umbrella of WIS Sports. They have loads of podcasts about pretty much any sports you're interested in, plus videos and writing. Find them at wissports.com. And Off the Front, I talk to a few women involved in cycling, from riders to makers to business people. For example, and to give you a sneak peek in upcoming episode four, I talked to bespoke bike builder Karen Hartley. She's one of the only female bike builders in Britain and also, it turns out, the world. So that's really exciting to be talking to her. Right now, though, I'm going to keep it brief because there's a full introduction of both my guests in the actual episode. But I do want to say that my conversation with Helen Wyman seems even more relevant now that I've seen Battle of the Sexes. The movie, of course, is about the Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs tennis match. It's really about pay equity. And it's also about whether or not people can be themselves, work in their profession to the best of their abilities, and also get paid equally. I was young during the actual match, but I remember it. And I remember all the crap Bobby Riggs said in the run-up to the match. The movie captures all that and captures the tone of the era. It's definitely worth seeing either as a reminder or to see what it was like during that time. I really enjoyed watching Billie Jean beat Bobby, especially since Earlier that day, I'd been reading that the International Cycling Federation, the UCI, once again chose not to step up to support equal pay for professional women cyclists. In the episode, Helen Wyman and I talk about the Federation and about all the work that she's done as a member of the Cyclocross Commission. She remains positive throughout and is excited about continuing her work for total pay equity. So stay listening. The episode follows right now. everybody to episode three of Wiss Sports Off the Front. I'm Elizabeth Emery with another fantastic set of guests. This month I talked to British cyclocross racer Helen Wyman and bike advocate Liz Cornish. You know I've been thinking a lot lately about taking up space. It's come up in many of the interviews I've done in the past few weeks and in the ongoing discussions about Hillary Clinton's new book. And in one of my favorite podcasts, Call Your Girlfriend, Ami Natuso talks to Hillary herself. Super exciting. Anyway, take a listen to that. Meanwhile, in the second half of this episode, Liz Cornish gets into taking up space. But first, let's say hi to our first guest. Hey there, how are you? I'm hot. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, I got a bit lost on training, but also it was so hot, I had to stop twice to get water. Wow. It was, oh, it was horrendous. So when you say hot, what, what's the temperature there? Uh, about 33, so 66, 96. Holy cow. Yeah. And the sun's really burning hot as well. So it's not just like humid. It's just like burning. It's not very pleasant. Is that going to follow you to Wisconsin? Yeah, it's supposed to be 94 on Sunday. So oh, great. Perfect. That'd be really unpleasant. 
That was cyclocross racer Helen Wyman. She talked to me directly after training. She's in the States to race the first two World Cups of the season, Jingle Cross in Iowa City and Trek's Waterloo event. Helen is a superstar athlete, and I'm going to let her introduce herself because she does an absolutely great job of taking up space. What she doesn't say in her introduction, but we do talk about later, is that she's also a superstar in women's cyclocross advocacy. Many of the positive changes we've seen over the past few years in women's cyclocross, pay equity, race length, TV coverage, and just general awareness, is due to her work as part of the UCI Cyclocross Commission. But I'll let her tell all that. Okay. Um, My name is Helen Wyman, and I am a nine times national cyclocross champion, two times European champion, and a world's medalist. And I like cyclocross. So I read that you started uh, racing at 14 after touring with your family for a lot of summers in France and England. And I just have so many questions about that. I mean, what was that like? And how long were the rides? And what kind of bike were you riding? Yeah, so we always rode bikes when we were kids. And my we used to go on cycling holidays. And I don't think they had loads of money, my parents. And so they made the most of what they had. And they so we used to do these cycle touring holidays and they were really fun most of the time. Occasionally there were de- there was definitely tears on my end at points, um, but they would go do probably I, when we were when I was twelve or thirteen we did one in northern France in Normandy and they had the worst rain they'd had in like forty years on the first day and we did. 50 miles, so 80 kilometers. Wow. And I had a, um, a pink and yellow Apollo from, it was from Halfords, which is like a, a bike shop in England. It's kind of like a car shop in England, but like a, a bike car shop. And uh, it weighed, I don't know, 40 pounds. It was ridiculous. And it had this pink rack on the back, which weighed as much as the bike again. And then I had all my stuff in it because we were carrying all our clothes with us. And, uh, yeah, and it rained, the worst rain in 40 years in northern France. And it was horrendous. And we apparently fell asleep in our dinner that night. <laughs> and me and my brother. And there was a couple with us. And they um, they weren't at the point where you were supposed to be after lunch to carry on. And we waited 10 minutes. And then the, the tour guide said, nope, we're on our way. So off she went. And we all went with her. And we left this couple behind. And they turned up at about 11 o'clock at night at the hotel. Oh, no. <laughs> And they got completely lost. And even everyone had the itineraries. I mean, it's not not difficult. And they got completely lost and they had to get a taxi. And then they had all this. They hadn't put their luggage in their panniers, weren't in plastic bags. And so everything was soaked. And uh, and it was just, they had the worst thing. And then the woman got sunstroke later on and stuff like that. It was, you made out really well in that experience then. Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. I mean, my parents are quite good at that stuff, so... <laughs> Yeah, and how long did that go on? I mean, how many summers were you doing that? Oh, we rode our bikes like every weekend. Like I rode to school every day. Mm-hmm. And um, it was probably about three miles each way. There was a great big hill to go up to get to school. And then obviously you got free wheel down, which was fun. And you could get home in about 11 minutes, but it took around 15 to get there. <laughs> and so and we used to, used to go, like on a weekend, we'd ride out to um, to a cafe somewhere and have a coffee and then or have a hot chocolate and cake and then ride home or we did some um youth hosteling some weekends with the cycle local cycling club and went on cycling just riding your bike really in in groups and 
And when I was 14, I was out riding one day with my dad and my brother. And a guy from the local cycling club said, rode past and was like really friendly, this guy called Kevin. And, uh, and he said, oh, come along. And my dad had been in cycling clubs when he was a kid. So up until his like early 20s. And so he said, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll come along. And we did. And then my brother wanted to race. And because he wanted to race, I wanted to do everything he did. I just wanted to do it a little bit better. And, uh, <laughs> and so I did. So I took up racing as well. That's great. That's really exciting. And were you doing other sports as well during that time or just cycling? Sports in school. And I was really into cross country running. So when I was 17, I went to the, they had like a school, local school one, which I won. And then they had a, um, a regional one, which I got, I won. And then they had a, the next size up one, <laughs> which is like East of England. And um, I, I didn't have a very good day there. I think I was like 20th or something. And then, but I still got selected for the national championships. But the national championships, cross-country running, was on the same weekend as a national cyclocross race in England. And I chose the cross race instead and never, never did cross-country running after that. <laughs> History was made. And so what are your days like now? Uh, not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> a typical weekday is, yeah, wake up, have coffee go uh, have breakfast, go training, come back, do some kind of um, core or something else, whatever's on that day, um, watch TV, have dinner, go to bed. That's pretty much it. Are you coaching yourself or do you have a coach? Uh, me and Steph work together. My husband worked together for coaching and we also work with a sports scientist in England who's a um, lecturer in um, sports science and he's doing a master's degree in cyclocross power. Oh, Wow. So are you getting tested with, you know, power meters and all that? Um, so I actually, well, he's been doing it for such a long time. He started like five years ago <laughs> and he took the power from a load of races and he's, I just send him the power from my races that he, if he wants them for his projects. But um, he, I think he might have finished it now. I mean, I think he finished it this summer, but um he basically found that it's really hard to analyze the power in the cross races because of running and sprinting and these times where you freewheel into a corner, but then you sprint attack out of it. And that um, he's basically used the information to help us to, to replicate as much as we can in training. So instead of going out and doing 10 max effort sprints or five max effort sprints, like you might do as a track sprinter, we go out and do 30 sprints between three and 550 watts because that's what you do because you do 100 of them in a cross race so it's kind of that's how we use him and then we also when we do like um altitude training blocks and stuff we're like we send him what we want to do and say is this right will this good and, and he can change stuff nice that's nice to have the science behind what you're doing yeah i work with the nutritionist at the minute fuel your adventures um he's a really nice guy and he's helped a lot with stuff like uh, an altitude training camp and like um, the like cherry juice and beet juice and all that kind of stuff that you read about, but you're not quite sure how you should use in your in your race strategy. And so he's helped me loads with that recently. And we also work with a sports psychologist um, who's worked with Steph's team, and he's a really nice guy. He's come out to a load of races with us and stuff. So we have a, a good team around us. Yeah, it sounds great. The nutritionist does he a new prescribed to some any particular theory like he is very much about um replenishing your energy stores with carbohydrate and in cross yeah you're very much using up your glycogen so you're short-term energy and you, the only way to replace that is with sugar 
basically carbohydrate a road rider doesn't use as much in such a short period of time they would use it over the whole eight hours which is easier to replenish when you're using it replenish using it replenish whereas in a 45 minute race you can't actually replenish what you used in the first 20 minutes so right so what are you eating um during the race you don't eat during the race you just make sure that you're full at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) basically you make sure you're fully topped up fully loaded at the beginning are you able to drink at all uh you can you can carry a bottle but um if you're going uphill and have to put your bike on your shoulder it's really difficult to carry the bike so i will have a bottle on sunday for sure because it's 31 degrees i'll just push my bike so you just raced jingle cross and i understand that's one of your favorite races it was hot but did you still enjoy it as much yeah it's a brilliant race it's a fantastic venue it's really well organized and it's a really good event it um unfortunately it was too hot for me so friday night i raced and um i did really well i was fourth and it was fine on friday night because the temperature was cooling during the during the race um whereas on sunday it just got hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter (laughs) i don't have a very good um ability to deal with heat and um it's it's actually a thing it's um cardiac drift you get cardiac drift and so um, certain people respond to it worse than others and your heart rate goes up quite high in the heat and then you can't function as well and my heart rate's already really high in a cross race I average 196 oh that is high so if it goes any higher I'd basically explode I don't do I just don't deal with heat right, right so how did the field the women's field seem to you this year at the start of the season good yeah good I don't know I don't know that they've necessarily... Certain riders have moved up, for sure. Other riders are just where they were last year, really. It's really weird. It's A lot of people... You always think, oh, yeah, I've trained really hard this summer. I know I've trained really hard this summer. And then you come into a race and then people beat you and you're like, why is it that everyone else has trained just as hard? <laughs> but if I trained this hard last year, I would be winning. And it's just like, it's not. it doesn't work like that. Everybody moves on every year and different people suddenly find the right click everything comes together and they they're right up there or you know I'm not going to judge my performances yet because the weather's too hot to judge them but um when I get back to Europe I would like to be in the top five in the world cup I I'd never uh raced cyclocross and the season seems so condensed and in road racing you know like at the beginning of the season you weren't looking to be super duper so how does that work in cyclocross yeah, so normally the first World Cup is October, um, but this year and last year, the first two World Cups are in September. So our first World Cup is a week before Road Worlds, which is a bit its a bit crazy, really, because A, the weather's too hot, and B, you're expecting people to be peaking, because the World Cup is worth a lot of money right. and a lot of speed, and so you're asking people to be peaking in September and at the in the first week of February for the World Championships, which is really really tough to to carry because world cup goes one in september one in october two in november two in december two in january you can't you can't go peak september peak february you have to like kind of peak september hold it on a bit (laughs) see if you can carry on kind of try to mini peak again around december january nationals and then kind of see if you can hold on to world so it's really it's really difficult and people don't get to race against each other before the first world cup there was only a couple of UCI races before then. So in an ideal world, you wouldn't have your first World Cup until middle to end of October because it gives people a chance to really tussle it out first. And So what are your goals for this upcoming season? 
I want to do one in individual races, certain races, um, and I'd like to um, to get a top ten at Worlds um, again, and I would like to win nationals because nine is just not quite ten, is it? So it's not a pretty number. Yeah, it was ten's a nice round number. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I'd like to win that. I didn't get to ride it last year because um, I had a broken collarbone. So your starting position in cyclocross is based on your world ranking. And so the front row is ideal. So you want to be in the top eight in the world to be on the front row. And I've spent the last 10 years in the top eight. So I've been on the front row. And uh, after I broke my collarbone, I lost all of my UCI points for the whole of November, December, January. And so I plummeted to 29th in the world ranking. And now I'm moving up, but I'm still third row. And it's so weird. (laughs) so weird starting in a different position because it's a completely different start back there and starts really important in cross and you don't win a race with it but you can get in that front group and getting in that front group saves you the energy that means you can then attack from it whereas if you're spending all your energy getting to the front group once you get there you're basically reliant on them having an easier lap before so you can recover before you can do anything more so yeah so it's really weird but I really want to move up in the ranking and that's what most of this season is going to be about moving back to the front row. How quickly could you move up to the top eight again? Uh, It would take at least a month, if not two months. So because it's a rolling ranking, so it goes last year's points go off and this year's points go on on the same time as in the same date. So um, I was racing at the beginning of the season and I had some really good results and I won a few races. So I'm actually losing points still. because I'm not replacing them because the dates don't work out the same. So <laughs> it won't be until uh, October. But there's three World Cups and it won't be until I hit those three World Cups, October, November, November, where I'll really gain points back on people because nobody really loses points because they're, they'll replace last year's World Cup with an equivalent result. So they might lose 10 points, but they don't lose 100 points, whereas I lost 100 points at every World Cup last year. Right. Um So I want to move on to media. And how did those cyclocross diaries start? Yeah, so every year you want to do something a bit different and want to try new things. And um, a lot of people don't get access to riders immediately after races. And so we thought, well, instead of a written report, because a lot of people do written reports, which are great, and they do, you know, provide great information and all those kind of things. But you can never get them out until like Monday to your sponsors and things like that. And so we thought just a a, um, quick interview after the race would actually be something quite interesting to people. And they get it that night, basically they get it as soon as possible. And so um, Modesta works asked if they could do the video for us and could format it into a nice neat thing um, with some bit of race footage that Steph takes from the course. So and they've done it super quick. They've done it within like two hours of the race for us. So they're really nice. Yeah, yeah, they're really, really smart. So we'll um, we're going to try and do them at every race um, for the whole season. So. And how has it been? You know, finishing the race, getting in your seat, and especially in at Jingle Cross, it was so hard, hot, and having to do a video. Oh, I think it. I think it's good. I think it's it's a really good thing as a rider because you're actually verbalizing your emotions quite quickly and you're not dwelling on them so if you've had a bad result you're not dwelling on it because you've actually had to tell the world what you really think about it (laughs) 
And that's kind of quite a good therapeutic process. And if you've had a good result, then you also get to tell the world, you know, how great it is and how happy you are. And, and also performances actually mean something more than a result. So I was only fourth in Jingle Cross, but fourth is a good, it's an okay result, but the performance was really good. So I can express, yeah, I was really happy with that performance. And fourth isn't a win, it's not even a podium, but I was still really happy with that performance. So you can kind of, yeah, I think I, it's not difficult to do. I mean, you're sweaty, you can't breathe that well, but it's always like five minutes before we do them. And, <laughs> and yeah, I think they're good. Yeah, and you know what I like is that, you know, there's something about that immediate emotion that you can never recreate. And you certainly can't recreate it in writing, but, you know, even an hour later, it's way different. It is because you've had really time to think about it. Whereas your instant reaction is actually how you really feel. And that's a good thing to verbalize it at the time, because maybe later you might have thought about it quite a lot and thought, actually, I didn't really think that was that great a performance. But at the time, you were happy with it. So deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> you and your husband are working together. And how has that, are you arranging all your sponsorship, the two of you? Steph does it all, yeah. I talk to the sponsors and everything, but Steph does all the fine details. It seems like you, you guys have a really good relationship with your sponsors. Yeah, well, I've always worked with sponsors that I like working with because you, people can tell if you're genuine or if you're not. And so if you genuinely like something, it's not hard to say good things about it. And if you are using it because you're getting it for free, it's kind of like, mm, you can kind of tell. <laughs> and so I've always wanted to work with, with good people and say so like, I've been with Kona for eight years. Unfortunately, that ends in December. But eight years is a long time for anyone to be in one team. And I think that shows how much I value them as a brand and how much they value me as a rider. So, And I've worked with Challenge now for probably seven or eight years as well, maybe a bit longer. And they're a fantastic company. And I've actually, me and Steph together, have actually um, designed tyres based on what we want in Europe. And they brought one out. The chicane was based, was Steph helped design it. And uh, it, it like sold out in the first time they brought it out. So, you know, if you, if you have a good relationship with a company, you can really give back in more than just them giving you stuff or cash or whatever. You, you can actually help and develop stuff with them. And that's why it's better to be with the sponsors that you're used to and sponsors that you like and that you can interact with than just a random thing that you know you can't really have any impact back because because they they need to get a return from you but in the same way you know it's important that you're able to give something back to are you still on the uci commission um so yeah i was um on the cross commission and we don't really know what's happening right now because the presidency is the guys being re-elected for the president and once the president's re-elected he then re-establishes all the commissions and then he chooses who goes in apart from the elected people oh. so um there are two elected athlete representatives but i was um put on four years ago as the uh token <laughs> the token woman <laughs> um so uh my position was just put in place so we'll see whatever happens with the next president and I think if Brian Cookson goes back in again, he'll probably just reestablish everyone as they are and just carry on. But until we know, then I don't know. But I think I've done some amazing things and I'm really proud of what I've achieved. 
And I'm really proud of the fact that four, five years ago, before I went on the commission, my biggest thing was that I wanted the race times to always be the women's race was immediately before the men's race. Because in Belgium, there was a series that wasn't doing that. They were picking us at 10.30 in the morning. And when there was one race before ours, and then there was like the under 16s, and then the juniors, and then the under 23s, and then the men. And so we weren't getting any coverage whatsoever and any respect in that series. And it's a big series. And I always believed that if we changed that rule and we made it women before men, that within a short period of time, we would have some form of equality in prize money, that we would have television and that we would have huge respect among the spectators. And I think everybody thought I was a little bit balmy because it's kind of like, well, it's only one rule. What difference is it going to make? But it has played out exactly that. And now we have 24 races on television. Every C1 and C2 race, which is every non-World Cup race, has equal prize money. And equal prize money at the World Championships is just the World Cups that aren't. And um, we have more prize money in the World Cups than we've ever had for the overall. And we have, yeah, live television, 24 races last year. There should be like 28, I think, this year, live on Belgium television. And I can't go out in Aldenada without someone going, oh, you're Helen Wyman. So we have recognition. (laughs) (laughs) And everything has just played out to such an amazing extent that even I'm a little surprised. But And there's still work to do. And we also have a junior world championships. We have in my in the last four years, we have now got an under 23 world championships and we're going to have a junior world championships in two years. So the steps have been huge and all because of like a few simple role changes and putting a token woman on that commission that's prepared to say, no, actually, we need to do this. Well, congratulations. That is so awesome. I, yeah, it's just great. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And And I do think it's really cool. And the biggest thing to me, it was changing attitudes. And the guys on the commission, we were discussing the um, structure for the World Championships because it's over a Saturday and Sunday, not just one day. And I said, oh, you could put the women back immediately before the men on the Sunday. And they said, no, because the women draw the second biggest crowd at the World Championships. We have to have them on Saturday afternoon for the television and for the um, to get more money for people to come to the race. And for them to sit there in that meeting and say that, four years ago, they would never have said that. Oh, that's nice. So changing attitudes, that was pretty much what I wanted to achieve. Yeah. So I'm super excited about those changes. I want to ask a few negative questions like, you know, why isn't the World Cup equal prize money? Uh, Because the difference is 30,000 euros per round. That would mean that um, they would need to find eight, nine rounds at 30,000 euros would be... 270,000 euros um, and the sponsorship for the World Cup overall in total I think is only about 200,000 so they'd have to find another sponsor that would provide that money and more. Um, The other option is to add up and divide by two which they're not keen on Um, and another option is to try and subsidize it in some way and those they're, they're just they're things that I can't physically go out and do. I can't go out and get sponsors. I can't right. go out and get the UCI to subsidise stuff in any way. Um, so, and I can't make race organisers put more money in because World Cups already cost an organiser like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do a race. And if I then tell them they've got to find another thirty five thousand dollars, then 
you know, they're kind of screwed. And this weekend is Trek CX Cup, which is the second World Cup of the series. And they have actually, off their own back, equalised it, which is a really impressive thing to do. Um, and I hope that other organisers in Europe might take it upon themselves to consider doing the same or to consider their options as to how they can do the same. Because I got them to agree in the meeting that within three years, they would find a way to make it equal. And they would have their own writing. And so somehow the people that have the power to do that have to do something about it. Right. I mean, how viable is adding up and dividing by two? I mean, I did notice that the, and you've written about this, that the men's field pays way deeper and probably way deeper than it actually needs to. So there's money out there right, you know, right away. That's easy. Yeah, so um, the men's field pays to 40 and the women pays to 20. So if you took the last 10 and made it 30th place in a World Cup, you'd get back 3,000 euros. So you still got 27,000 euros deficit. Um, So in that respect, it's actually a lot harder than that. Um, But we did, I did make a proposition which kept the first three prize money the same and then it dropped significantly after that. But the problem that you have is the culture of, uh, of cyclocross. And so historically, everybody gets start money to start the bike race. So outside of a World Cup, uh, a rider that the world champion like Wout van Aert would get, say, 6,000 euros to start the World Cup, to start a, a normal race in Belgium. Because he draws fans and those fans pay money to go watch. You get 20,000 spectators. But Wout draws people in. Um, the women get paid start money as well but it's a lot less. So probably a world champion would be about 1,500 euros. Because we don't, I mean, it would be like a gate figures at a, a basketball match or baseball match or something. You know, we don't actually physically bring more riders than, than the top male world champion. But World Cups do not have start money. And so if Wout van Aert won the World Cup, he gets 5,000 euros in prize money. If he starts a bike race in Belgium, he gets 6,000 euros in start money. If he then won it, he gets another 1,500. So already (laughs) he has two and a half grand more than winning a World Cup, which sounds ridiculous, but it's the culture of start money. And so if you then take away, say, uh, a 10th place rider, could be a good rider, could be someone that traditionally has had a lot of success, but is maybe on, on the way out, but he would probably still get 2,000 euros to ride a race. And in 10th place, already he only gets 1,000 to win, to get 10th in a World Cup. So the problem we have to change and to make it acceptable for the male field is that the start money is way over what you would get in any prize money in any race. And people are already, the UCI are like kind of like, well, it's a World Cup, but all we have is points. The only incentive we have is points because... All of the top Belgians get paid more to ride a normal race. So, But we want the best Belgians in our race because it, we want it to be an elite race, to be an exclusive race, to be like the best in the world, the World Cup series. So if we take away prize money from that, are we going to get less riders? And you can argue, well, no, because they still get paid a hefty salary. <laughs> but, yeah, one of the riders did say, well, I wouldn't go to a local World Cup, even though it's half an hour right from my house, because if I was only going to win a thousand euros. Well, I mean, it's easy to say when it's not actually happening. You know what I yeah. mean? 
yeah, 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 totally. But I, I have tried so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Uh, it's just very frustrating because it, you know, like it's just all circular. It's all circular logic. I mean, at a certain point, you just have to make the decision. I mean, not you, but you know. The biggest concession I could get was that they've agreed that they will find a way to make it equal within three years. And that's yeah, pretty three, great. Three years is a long time, but it's. It, I've been trying this for already four, so it's seven years. But at the same time, maybe another three years of because our television viewing figures in Belgium they had just under a million viewers for the women's national championships just under a million there's only five million people in the whole of belgium in the whole of flanders north belgium and a million of them watched the women's race on television our average viewing figures on normal races are about six hundred eighty thousand, compared to the men's are around 800 eight hundred fifty thousand. so we're right up there with the guys and when you get years of accumulation on accumulation on accumulation of those kind of stats then i think it's much easier for the UCI to enforce a kind of add up, divide by two. Whereas when you weren't getting any television coverage, it's it's much harder for them to say, well, look, they're bringing money in as well. And we, off the back of the television, one of the major race organizations were able to get an extra sponsor just for the women's race last year. And suddenly it's like, well, look guys, we're bringing in money that you wouldn't have got otherwise. <laughs> so then you have power and then you have the ability to use that. And so it's, it is a slow process and you could either revolutionize or you could just work slower in a process. And I think for cross, because it's actually such a good format, the slower process is, is probably going to make it the most successful in the long run. Well, re regardless of what happens in the UCI presidential election, I certainly hope you're back on the, on the commission. Yeah, I think I, I, I would like to be, I was thinking I probably wouldn't, but then I was like, no, there's still a way to go. We've still got stuff. You have still stuff to do. <laughs> oh, shit to get done. <laughs> so what are, you, what are your long-term goals for uh, cyclocross, for women's cyclocross racing and the UCI? Um, I want full equality in all World Cups, um, prize money and everything. I want 50-minute races. Um, at the minute, we have minimum of 40, maximum of 50, but I want them to be 50 minutes. Another lap, basically. So um, does, I have to interrupt, does, are the UCI rules saying that women cannot race for an hour? Yeah, so what they are, uh, every race is set at a time. So the juniors is 40 minutes, the under 23 is 50 minutes, the men is one hour. And I want the women to be 50 minutes because I think an hour is boring and I think 40 minutes isn't enough. So at the minute... The compromise that I was given was that the wording changed from the women's race will be 40 minutes to a minimum of. And so if it's 39.58 when that rider crosses the line, they have to do another lap. So, and that's the compromise I've had so far, but I still want to work for the 50 because I think there was a lot of confusion in the first year of it. And there's still some issues with people not grasping the concept that it has to be over 40 minutes. And I think if it just read 50, it would be much better. But I think the men's races should be 50 minutes as well, to be honest, because I think it gets boring. Nobody really pays attention in the last 10 minutes. So um, I think it would make for even more exciting racing. And I think um, we need to in uh, bring in a structured uh, World Cup for under-23 and junior women. Um, 
I think that we need to somehow work on the development of younger riders in the sport, to keep them in the sport, to elites. Um, and, yeah, that's pretty much enough to start with. Yeah. And, and what about, um, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, sponsorship of riders and how it's sort of a hard market right now. Any goals for that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's something that um, that the, the world governing body can really no. manipulate. They do have, they brought out cyclocross teams this year, which is quite interesting, which part of the rules they asked me, what, you know, should we have three people, it can include a woman, or should we have three people, it should include a woman. And I was like, yeah, it has to have a woman. So that's, you know, that's a good thing. I think, and that's a good thing for women to get contracts, particularly in Europe. Unfortunately, in America, the cross-team scene is kind of shrinking, is quite unfortunate there's some amazing american riders men and women but the structured team format there's less teams now than there was four or five years ago when i first started coming to america and that means that there's less options for everybody male and female in america whereas in europe i think for women there's a lot more options than there's ever been because the teams need a woman to be in there and it's your highest ranked riders as your highest ranked man and your highest ranked woman in your team count towards your UCI team ranking. And so you're going to want a good woman. You're going to need a rider in the top 10 because that's going to be the difference for you. So, and because there's television time, you're prepared to pay a rider because your sponsors are getting an extra 45 minutes of, of TV time that they didn't have before, if that they wouldn't get if they didn't have a woman. And so for Europe, there's much more options now, but, for America, I, th- I think I sadly think there's way less than there ever was, which is a real shame, really, because the scene is great in America. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, as you mentioned earlier, it is such a good format for TV and for spectators, which isn't true of road racing, for sure. No, it is a fantastic format. And it's it's really exciting to watch. And it's a really easy way to give back as well. I do loads of cross clinics. And it's really easy to be accessible in that way, much more than on the road, because it's much harder to run a skills workout on the road than it is off-road. Right, definitely. Well, we're going to wrap things up. I really appreciate the time, especially after you just were training. So thank you very much. No worries. Good luck next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Our second guest is Liz Cornish. She is a longtime bike commuter and currently serves as the ED at Bikemore in Baltimore, Maryland. Previously, she worked for the League of American Bicyclists in Washington, D.C. as the Women Bike Manager. Liz came to bike advocacy because she believes bikes are a vital tool for creating vibrant communities that connect citizens to recreation, jobs, and each other. As she says during our conversation, we need to figure out how to move people in cities. We talk about taking up space, working with developers, elbowing your way in, and just applying. As we were exchanging emails to schedule the interview, she wrote, and I quote, I have spent a fair amount of time thinking and writing about how to get more women engaged in cycling for transportation, recreation, and sport. So to start, I asked her to expand on that. You know, I really came to it when I got my job at the League of American Bicyclists. Women Bike had been a program that had been created but they hadn't had a staff person dedicated to it full time. And when people asked, well, what is women bike? And essentially it was 
a program that that sought to increase ridership. But and what I learned over that, you know, I guess it was about 14 months that I was in that role. I got to travel a lot, and I certainly spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different women, um, whether it was high-ranking employees at some of our biggest, you know, bike companies like Trek um, or Specialized. I spent a lot of time talking with women who race. I spent a lot of time talking with women who do policy work and advocacy, and I spent a lot of time talking with women who represent the wide gamut of of bicyclists in terms of recreational cycling or urban commuting or, or racing. And ultimately there was a couple of things, um, that really, really stood out to me is that women can be sort of this indicator species for like how successful or how well something is being done or how inclusive it is. And that if women are in a space, chances are it's going to be healthier and safer and more inclusive for everyone. Um, and, and so I think when we're thinking about, it's not just always about increasing participation or ridership among women. There are a lot of different populations that either don't see themselves in sort of this modern American bike movement, or they're not adequately represented or they don't feel invaded or, or how things are structured. It doesn't seem like very accessible to them. And I think there's a lot of initiatives and programs and things that people can do, but in increasing ridership among women, we're starting to, you, you find that people start asking the questions that they probably should have been asking all along in terms of how do you make something inclusive, inviting and safe? And and everybody benefits from that when we when we go down that level of inquiry, uh, including including men that were already maybe participating or doing something. And I think that that is so important as we think through how to bring more people to the sport or more people to just even embrace it as something that we see every day in our cities, is that our messaging, the diversity of programming that we offer, so that we can get people have multiple entry points into riding a bike. Those are all really critical. The other interesting thing that I learned about working on this issue was that women are drawn to cycling typically, or it appears because they really enjoy that social aspect. So you'll see, you'll see a man get into cycling or bike commuting, and they're probably spending a lot of time doing riding alone or solar rides and pre- feeling pretty comfortable with that. And maybe they never really become part of bike culture or bike community uh, just because this is a, a hobby or, or a recreational tool or a commuting tool that they use, but it doesn't necessarily become part of their identity. Whereas for women, I saw very quickly, you know, a woman would decide that she wanted to start biking to work and she would hop on a Facebook forum and ask a couple questions of other women uh, she'd get what she needed to do to try it, and it was a super empowering experience for her, and it also made her feel part of something bigger than herself, and I think that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because that feels really good. And so then all of a sudden, the woman that hopped on a bike just to try to get to work a little faster or a little more efficiently or to incorporate exercise into her everyday life 
now all of a sudden is maybe buying a second bike and maybe getting into mountain biking or maybe trying out racing a little bit or just trying out longer group rides on the weekends. And so there's a couple of things that happen there. One, I think when we're talking about urban cycling, the, I love how it teaches women to take up physical space. And, you know, when you're biking in the city, you have to really learn how to assert yourself. Like you're really small compared to the cars and the trucks all around you. And so you need to learn how to take up space and make your presence be known. And there's so many times in our work life and our family life as women where we've been socialized to shrink into ourselves, to be meek, to wait our turn, to not be too loud or too aggressive. Um, but urban commuting b- requires that as like a mode of, <laughs> as a, as a survival <laughs> technique. And so when you provide opportunities for women to practice that, just getting to and from work, you start to see them show up in other areas of, of their life in, in new and exciting ways. And I think that um, if nothing else happens because of that, I think that in of itself has has really huge transformative abilities. Sure. I, lo- I love the idea of taking up space via bicycles. So what are the barriers that you have found for women to actually get started? I mean, I think there's there's some barriers that are sort of ubiquitous that I see everybody experience, um, whether they're they're a man or a woman or, or wh- wherever they fall in terms of identity. Some of it's just logistical, right? Like, what do I wear to stay cool or warm or dry or wicking sweat when I get to and from work or to think about everyday bicycling? When I get to work, is, is that culture at my workplace receptive to me biking there? Is there a shower if I need one? Or is there like a locker where I can store things so I don't have to keep my sweaty commuting clothes in my desk drawer. So all of those things are sort of the same logistical barriers. Is there a safe place to park my bike when I get there? Are you working with uh, organizations and companies in Baltimore to sort of... So yeah, it's been really interesting. So there's a lot of new construction and and developers reach out quite frequently because they've sort of recognized that I'm able to, in the early process, give them some tips and tricks for incorporating that because they know that in order to retain and attract talent, having those amenities that people value now that they didn't value the same way 20 years ago. Uh, those are really, really critical. So I have, you know, whether it's bike parking or creating those, those higher end amenities like showers and locker rooms and things like that, people are building it and people understand it and developers are asking me to help them do that. Oh, that's nice. The other barriers that are, I think, more specific to women is just, I think because of how women are typically socialized, there's this sort of thing like we don't like to f- ever put ourselves in a position where we look where we might look a fool or like where we might look like we don't know what we're doing. That's a really, really uncomfortable space for women to be in uh, because women are, are so scrutinized, right, all the time in our decision making and our physical appearance and how our bodies move through space. And so women can be really resistant to that. Whereas I think men are less socialized. Like it's men are much more comfortable being out in the world and being a novice of something and and not worrying about it. I had a friend that just did it. You know, he's a, he's a cyclist. He's pretty serious cyclist, but I would say newer to being a serious cyclist. He'd always been sort of like a, a bike rider, but he started to get into racing more this year. And he just did his first cyclocross race a couple weeks ago. And the only thing he did to prepare for it was to go to like a two hour cyclocross clinic, like three days before. 
and I just don't see, you know, I just don't see women attacking new opportunities like that with the same confidence. And so I think that that can be a real barrier uh, that in order to get to the starting line, women really have to overcome a lot of internal conflict around like, okay, I've got to be brave. I've got to be bold. I've got to put myself out there in a way that makes me really vulnerable, uh, that opens myself up to criticism and scrutiny. Can I do this? And I don't think men have to go through that mental gymnastics in order to get themselves into new experiences and situations in the same way. Well, that's the same thing that the stat that came out about men applying for jobs if they fulfilled 20% of the requirements and women wait until they fulfill 100% of the requirements. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've had that conversation so many times with like, especially I have a lot of women friends that are younger than I am. And so they're just at a different life stage. And I have to tell them that all the time. I'm like, no, you just apply. Are you kidding? You just apply. They'll tell you if you're not qualified. (laughs) You don't have to make that decision. If you like the job, just apply. Um, and that's and great that, advice. Yeah, and and so I, th- you know, I, I think that 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 I think that's so that's so correct, right? Like women typically opt out before they need to, right? They they've already sort of reasoned their way out of why it can't work or why it's not for them. And then I would imagine that another big barrier, particularly for women, is that like. Especially around urban bicycling and, and commuting, but but maybe but also actually that's probably not true. I think it's probably true for re- whether it's recreation or racing. I think women. I think each woman that I've ever known has come to if if they're lucky enough to come to a place where they love their body, where they have a positive body image, where they feel good about their physical health, and they have a good relationship with food and fitness. If, they're, if they've been lucky enough to arrive at that place, that it becomes much easier to start to engage in physical pursuits and put yourself, you know, wearing tighter clothes, um, putting yourself in physical proximity to where people are going to notice you. I mean, you women get catcalled on their bikes all the time and get lewd things yelled at them just because they're riding a bicycle. And, and that's... And so I think if there's if there are women that have not arrived at that place or just not there yet or are on that journey of getting to that place, that I think the realities of our society and how it objectifies women, no matter what they're doing, it can be really, really difficult to opt into that. And I, I really am sympathetic to that because I just I think about some of the scary or just even gross um, situations that I found myself in that have made me uncomfortable, but that I, I, not everybody has had the same experiences and opportunities that I've had. So they may not have the capacity to steal themselves and, and face those things. And so being exposed in the public space like that on a bicycle is something that not every woman is, is going to be prepared to do. I don't think people realize how often I get cat calls or how often cyclists get cat calls and lewd comments. I don't, I don't think it's understood how often that happens. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's like as a, I remember as a young teenager, when I first got my driver's license, you get, women get told ridiculous things. Like I remember like getting told, like when you're walking back to your car in a parking lot, when you're this many feet away, like bend down and look underneath the car to make sure there's not anyone hiding underneath the car. 
you know, waiting for you and make sure you look into the back seat before you unlock the car and get in the car. Make sure there's nobody in the back seat waiting for you. I can't tell you, like, as a teenage girl, like, probably up through, I don't own a car now, so I don't have to worry about that. There's nobody hiding underneath my bike <laughs> when I, but I mean, like, that, that was just so instinctual. That was some, that was like a, the silly little routine that I worked into my day of literally scra- crouching down in a parking lot to look underneath my car and peering in the back seat of my car before I would ever enter into it to make sure that there was, the, you know, the boogeyman wasn't there. And, and we know statistically in regards to that type of stranger or on stranger crime, you know, that that's so, it's so rare that, that those types of things occur. It's not that they don't occur. It's just that it's rare that they occur. But meanwhile, majority of women are going through life like that. They're go moving through the public space most of the time thinking, how do I avoid being victimized? How do I avoid being harassed? And it's, you know, in, in, in cities, it's, it's just sort of part of your routine, right? You know, like, oh, I can't walk and text because I, I need to have my eyes up. I can't, I don't, I don't wear headphones when I run in the city, you know, because like, I, I want to be able to hear my surroundings better. Um, you know, so those are things that women get trained and socialized to do. And it really removes us from maybe sometimes fully participating in things that would greatly improve our quality of life. Well, let's end up on a positive note. And what are your goals for Bike More and for women and, and commuting and getting involved in cycling? Well, I think there's, you know, this the general goal of Bike More is to make riding a bike not feel like, and, and I think this certainly translates to women, riding a bike should just feel so normal. Uh, it shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like a Herculean feat. It shouldn't feel like you're risking your life. It should just feel like a choice that, that anyone is able to opt into. Uh, it's not always going to work for everybody all the time, um, but it should be a choice that's available to everyone if they if they want it. And and that's the goal of Bike More. Like, how do we create neighborhoods? How do we create a citywide system where any person that is interested in learning how to ride a bike, whether it's recreationally, whether it's getting into racing, or whether it's learning how to bike to work, those things, the tools to be able to do that, the resources the infrastructure that makes them feel safe, those things are available. And so to get there, it's a lot of things. It's programs, it's policy, uh, and we're, we're, gonna, we're looking forward to the future where we can grow and start to take on more, more and more of those efforts. But the other, the other flip side of that is that I'm, you know, when we talk about women in bicycling, the other thing where women are not very often is in leadership roles, particularly in policy, particularly right. in planning and particularly in city government. And I do feel a responsibility to model both stewarding a successful and um, sustainable nonprofit that we can pay our bills and we can do good work in the community and we can create great opportunities for people. And I'm a woman and I'm an executive and I lead that and I can model that for other women that may not opt into that. But more importantly, when there's a panel discussion or when there is um, people getting in a room and talking about transportation, I elbow my way in and I am there. And I, and then I, and I always bring other women with me. And, and, and I think that that's so important is that when I've been provided an opportunity to be on a panel or speak, I'm like, Oh, have you called this person? You know, who'd actually be really great at this. Let's, let me put you in touch with this person. 
because they're not going there on their own right. and they're not reaching out to these people. And we, the women that know about this stuff are here. They should be at the table helping to shape these decisions that impact all of our daily life. But traditionally women haven't felt invited or included or confident to, to talk about sometimes pretty wonky, complex issues and trust. I mean, the people that the policy dudes that are really into their urban planning, transportation stuff, they're sometimes they're insufferable. Um, so it's sort of like there, it's sort of like who would want to go hang out in a room with them and be the only woman. But I try to model showing up and being there and changing the way they think and talk about um, certain issues because they, they have blind spots. You know, I have my blind spots, they have their blind spots, but we all need to make sure that we're doing things that put us in touch with people that are different than us so that we can um, really come up with solutions that start to change how we move in cities. We don't, you know, we just don't have a choice anymore. It's so clear, you know, the writing is on the wall. We have to change how we move people in cities. It's important for our health. It's important for the climate. We have to change how people move in cities and and we know how to do it. And and all we need to do now is create the political climate so, so the people that do make the decisions feel confident. Uh, and emboldened to make the right ones. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Happy to do whatever I can to support you and your efforts, because I think we're doing this really great. Thanks. Thanks All right, a lot. take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much to this month's guests, Helen Wyman and Liz Cornish. Also, thanks to Bike More and many, many words of appreciation to Trek for supporting Women's Cyclocross World Cup and Equal Pay. Please support Trek by buying something Trek. You can find links to all their websites and social media and more in episode notes of the show at wisports.com. While you're on the site, sign up for our monthly newsletter. When you sign up, you will automatically be entered in the sweepstakes for a prize from one of our sponsors. We are on all the social media channels at Wisports. And if you'd like to drop us a line with suggestions, comments, or questions, email us at info at wisports.com. Let me know what you think about equality in cyclocross racing, the current goings-on at UCI, taking up space, or really anything else. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast or however you are listening. It really does make a big difference in spreading the word about everything with sports is doing for women and sports. And for more of me, Elizabeth Emery, listen to my other podcast, Hear Her Sports, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at hearhersports.com. Every other week, I talk to exceptional female athletes or women in sports. Find me also on social media at Hear Her Sports. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Off the Front. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.